0: I trust we all desire to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, on this day. Uh, The title of this message is Providential Planning. Uh, And I really did not plan to be preaching about planning on the last day of the year. Uh, we'll also be talking about God's providence uh, as well. So it, uh, God just worked that, that out That uh, as we plan for the next year. What kind of planning should we be doing? So let's, uh, let's pray once again and ask that God would uh, help us to understand this message, his words. Dear Lord, uh, would you now illuminate our hearts and minds that we may know and love these words? Uh, words that you gave to your servant James so that we may glorify you better and we ask these things in Jesus name amen so our text is going to be James uh, 14 uh, 4 (laughs) 13 through 17 James 4 13 through 17 I'm going to read that uh, text now so please listen carefully as this is uh, God's holy word James four thirteen through 17 Come now you who say tomorrow or today we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead you ought to say if the Lord wills We will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, uh, it is sin. And the key key passage or the key verse in this is going to be verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live uh, and do this or that. Well, in our text, James is not addressing a, a particular person in the church. Rather, he's saying that there are some within the church who are boasting in their self-sufficiency. They, they, maybe it had a one-time humble submission to God, but that has now been replaced with a spirit of independence from God. So who are these presumptuous planners uh, well, James admonishes them by insisting that their plans be predicated on if the Lord's wills. And so this would indicate that there are Christians, or at least they were thought to be Christians. It's hard to imagine if unbelievers would submit or, or listen to, uh, to James give such a, a godly advice. As far as uh, their, the financial status of this, uh, these merchants... Uh, Douglas Mu writes this, the extensive travel plans they are making and their desire to make money suggests that they belong to the relatively well-to-do merchant class. And a lot of people in that uh, church, as you read James, were were poor. So there's a a big difference between these two, two people in the church, two kinds of people. You can hear James' passion and urgency when he rebukes these arrogant boasters. And why is that? Because they are reflecting the sinful mindset of a world that hates God. That hates God. The world wants nothing to do with God. And these arrogant boasters appear to have that very same ungodly worldly attitude. No, da- no doubt that James is going to be concerned that this could spread within the church, this kind of arrogant thinking. And James chides these men because they trusted in themselves while all the time they had been claiming to trust in God. So they were hypocrites. Uh, so instead, they had trusted in their intellect to devise a business plan. They relied on their business instincts to know when To enact this plan, they surmised what day would be the best day to move forward with this plan. There was the careful choice of which city uh, would give their plan the best chance to succeed. And after executing that plan, they they gauged how long they should stay in that city uh, as well. And from start to finish, there was this confident assurance that this venture was going to succeed. Well... The business plan was savvy good good business principles were being used in this plan we're not we're not chiding those plans they were they were good and they were careful. They carefully planned out each step. in fact, if the business world looked at that, they would give the amen to that that was that's excellent planning that's being done. Well, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> Well, nothing, perhaps, unless, of course, you claim to know God, yet you refuse to submit your plans to God. That can go wrong. Well, hopefully this message is going to help to remind us of our absolute dependence upon God for all things, and that and that all our plans must be humbly submitted uh, to our God, who is all-wise and all-powerful, Uh, and whose love for us could not be greater. I mean, he did give us a son, so we can submit all things to him. Well, we have every reason to trust God with our plans. And we have absolutely no reason to trust ourselves. Absolutely no reason. And we absolutely, uh, well, excuse me, the main headings of this uh, message are going to be just two. They're going to be presumptuous planning, and they're going to be providential planning. We're going to talk about providential planning first. We begin by looking at the presumption planning that James is seeing here. It is a plan that completely ignores God's authority. It completely ignores God's authority. James begins by denouncing these presumptuous planners. But first, what does it mean to be presumptuous? I actually had to look that up. I, wasn't, I had a pretty good idea. But. Uh, to be presumptuous is defined as in conduct or thought, saying or doing something without right or permission. Without right or permission. And that is certainly the sin that James is setting before us here. Presumptuous planning is to plan our affairs without seeking God's permission to do so. And it's really as if God did not even exist. And actually for some Christians, God really isn't called upon unless you're faced with a very ma- major crisis in their lives. That's the only time they, they, they call upon him. God then becomes their last resort. He becomes their final option when all human options have been used and have failed. And so uh, we've all heard that saying, when all else fails, what do we do? We read the instructions, right? And for some, when all else fails, well, might as well give God a try. Maybe he has the answers. Many have turned to God when they felt that death was near. Death was near. This is known sometimes as as foxhole religion. You might have heard of that from... From World War I soldiers would de- dig uh, deep trenches and to hide from the enemy and that 's where they would they would launch their uh, offensive as well. Uh, trench warfare was a long drawn out strategy it was a It was a waiting game sometimes several days would pass, and there wouldn 't be any shots fired from uh, any side that could be very unnerving all that silence and that silence could mean that the enemy was just about to, to launch an all-out major attack this gave soldiers a lot of time to think about the real possibility of not surviving that war or that day or the, or the next hour And so uh, many who had never called upon God before in their lives were now trying to cut a deal with him. I'm going to cut a deal with God. You know, and the bargaining went something like this. Lord, if you keep me from dying in this war, I promise to serve you from this day forevermore. Sounds good, right? But of course, when the war ended and they were reunited with their, their loved ones and most seemed to have forgotten the deal that they made with God or they thought that they had made with God now that's not to say God doesn't answer any of those kinds of prayers God often saves people when there's simply nowhere to look but up there may be people here that there was a time where they just were in complete despair and they lifted up their souls to God God help me, help me if you're there, if you're real, help me and sometimes God got yes, and he does, and he answers that person. So God saves, saves people in that situation. In fact, our pastor, uh, our pastor recently quoted Psalm 50, verse 15, Call upon me in the day of trouble, I will deliver you, and you'll glorify me. And that happens, and that happens. God uses all sorts of means to save people. Of course, God was not agreeing to a bargain that's made by a soldier. He was not cutting a deal with his soldier. God's salvation uh, of his people was planned from eternity past. Uh, Ephesians 1.11, we, we may quote this in our, our church more than, <laughs> more than any other passage. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will. All things, not some things, but everything. That soldier crying out to God was all part of the counsel of God's will. The counsel of God's will. More on that that later. Returning to James' rebuke of these uh, presumptuous planners, there's a name for that kind of thinking. Uh, That great sin has been called practical atheism. The practical atheism doesn't deny the existence of the one true God. Outwardly, that person may have an active Christian life, church attendance, tithing, volunteering, and even teaching and preaching. But yes, in everyday practical matters, though, God is just rarely called upon. He's just rarely called upon. Uh, He seldom sought for wisdom or guidance And seeking seeking God uh, is a low priority for the practical atheist. Obviously, uh, a practical atheist is not going to have a a strong prayer life at all. In practice, at least, that Christian looks very much like the atheist. Sometimes it can be hard to tell them apart. Uh, The atheist we read about in Psalm 10. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him you see, and his thoughts are there is no God. And that can look very much like the practical atheist, but there is a difference between the real atheist and the Christian who is a practical atheist. Uh, the true believer can never be a consistent practical atheist. They, they simply cannot. Never calling on God is evidence of a heart that has never, ever been changed by God. That person may sometimes call on God, but not enough. But they're going to call upon God. Scriptures calls us to seek the Lord in his strength, seek his presence continually. And most of you know, most of you know Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. And that's exactly what James is calling the, the, church, the church to do, to acknowledge God in all, all her ways. And that's just what these practical atheists in this church were not doing. They were not doing that. Well, we all have to admit that there is a practical atheist in us, right? How many times have we made plans and we have failed to bring those plans to God? How often have we done that? And how often have we realized we haven't lifted up our souls to God for longer than we care to admit? Sometimes we can go the whole day and, oh yes, there's God. (laughs) Almost like it's uh, being rude, you know. God's been with me the whole time and I've never even lifted up anything to him. There are two parts of this presumptuous plan and they both uh, exclude God. God. First, these presumptuous planners never even present their plan to God. In their in their minds, uh, self-approval is, is all the approval that they are ever going to need. They don't need God's approval. The thinking goes something like this. There's no need to run it by God. We have all this under control. Under control. Ever felt that way? <laughs> And I think that's one of the reasons that we, we fail to bring our, our plans to God. We think we have everything under control. Now, we much more readily bring our really big plans to God, right? Because we can see a whole bunch of dangers in that big plan, in that very important plan. We can see where things might uh, blow up in our face and such. Uh, but the thing is, the smaller plans that don't appear to present any problems to us... We, we, tend to, we tend to think something like this. No need to call for God, God's help. What could possibly go wrong? That's really arrogant. We say, oh, well, I see this plan. I, I know that nothing's going to go wrong with plan. We just don't see everything, though, do we? And that's why we have to submit our plans uh, to God. And we just fail to do that uh, over and over again. For these presumptuous planners any sense of God's authority was missing. Any sense of his authority was missing. It it is as if they had completely forgot who they belonged to. Now, we're assuming that they're they're Christians. We could probably assume, like any mixed congregation, these merchants, they were probably a mix of somebody who were true believers and some who were not. Uh, But... uh, it's as if they had completely forgot who they belonged to. And we begin reading Isaiah. is really revealing. Because this, in fact, is the first complaint that God lodges against Israel. He says, they acknowledged, they had refused to acknowledge God as their Lord and Master. Isaiah opens up, oh, hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. And that's the sin right there. They did not know who they belonged to. We belong to God twice at least twice in first Thessalonians Paul says you were you were bought with a price you're bought with a price you don't you don't belong to anyone else you belong to God he is your owner he is your creator we can no longer claim that our lives belong to us uh, Paul of course Paul says i no longer live but christ lives in me it's not my life anymore William Ernest Henley was a 19th century British poet, and he was famous for his poem, Invictus, Invictus. Don't. <laughs> and that, that famous last line, that famous iconic last line, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. And that was really the mindset of these, of these individuals. It is that autonomous, go-it-alone attitude that, kept, that, that, that captures the spirit and the, and the applause of this fallen world. And that really captures the spirit of these uh, presumptuous planners uh, as well. So these, uh, these planners sound more like they just came from a business seminar than from a church, Right? You know, one of those motivational seminars who say, you know, uh, if you can think it, you can do it. (laughs) If you can think it, you can do it. Set your goal, plan your steps, and always believe that you possess the qualities to reach that goal. It's all about you. It's all about confidence in yourselves. It's all about believing and trusting in yourself. Success lies within, not with an all-powerful, all-wise God. And that seems to capture the spirit of these planners as well. And sadly, that kind of thinking has seeped into the Christian church. Uh, It's the believe it and receive it teaching. Believe it and receive it. Uh, Success comes not from submitting your plans to God or seeking his strength and wisdom to carry out those plans. Instead, it's having faith in your faith. I've never really quite understood what that means. But anyway, having faith in your faith. What seems to be missing is just one thing. If the Lord wills, you won't hear that much in that teaching. I probably will never hear that. Well, we pray for these things, and we want these. Things. If the Lord wills that we should, we should have them. And behind that teaching is also the belief that we know, we know what's best for us. We know what's best for. Us. It's like little children who can't seem to understand why eating candy all day just isn't a good idea. <laughs> so. And second, the plan is the plan is implemented. Uh, of course, since that plan itself is is never is never brought to God for God's approval, uh, they certainly are not going to call on God uh, for guidance and wisdom in implementing this plan. So, whether the best day to begin their plan was today, tomorrow, or another day, it just that's something that couldn't be known. Like all of us, they were, were finite creatures. We don't know what's happening tomorrow, and so we submit our plans to God. Uh, we have no control over those things. A- absolutely nothing. Just look at this last year. All the different events and things that happened in your life. Could you? Uh, is it all predictable that it all happened the way that you thought this last year was going to go? And next year is going to go in a way that we probably, as much, many plans as we're going to do, uh, that's going to go uh, quite differently than what we think it would. But as believers, we are to submit our plans to God and pray for his wisdom and guidance. Proverbs sixteen three says, Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. And, and just a point here. Just because we submit our plans to God doesn't guarantee their success. We have, we have ungodly men who or who who wise, incredibly successful, that deny God. I and mean, there are the Bill Gates of the world you know, that, that, that refuse to acknowledge God at all. And we have godly Christian people who start businesses that fail. But what do we do as Christians? We say, that's the Lord's will everything that happens according to the Lord's will. If God wanted my business to fail, good, because that's God. We may not feel that way when that happens. But at the same time, we realize that, yes, it is God's will. So the success or failure is not really the bottom line in creating a will, creating our, our plan before God. The bottom line is that we have submitted our plans to God Whether that fails or whether that succeeds, you know, blessed be the name of the Lord. So making a plan, choosing which day to begin that plan is really the easiest part for this plan. Uh, Verse 13 says, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there. Which town should they enter? How long should they spend in that town? Again, God has never consulted as I was thinking about that, I was thinking about, like the prodigal son, you might think that these confessing Christians, the really Christians, would come to their senses. Just like that prodigal son. They come to their senses. What, what are we doing? What are we doing? We're completely having this plan without, without talking with God. Perhaps they might think to themselves... Our situation is far too precarious and uncertain to not seek God's wisdom and blessing, not to mention his permission. Let's return to the Father. What are we doing? What are we doing? The whole business plan without God. Well, it may be that when they were first new believers that this godly thinking would have prevailed in their lives. This might, this might be a, a, a long, drawn-out thing that uh, they came to where they were at, certainly not overnight. They might have recoiled at one time in their earlier lives and thought uh, and never uh, thought of doing such a thing without God's will. They would recoil at at such, such a thought, but not now. At some point, they must have started to drift away. They drifted away from a humble, childlike submission to God, and they eventually became these arrogant boasters. Again, it just doesn't happen overnight. They didn't develop a hardened, backslidden heart all of a sudden, and at some point, they just stopped fighting fighting against, uh, against the rebellious spirit that was welling up inside of them. They just gave up. They just stopped fighting that. Perhaps they gave full reign to their love of money. It's a real possibility. They might have thought this one sin, this one sin would not grow and bring them to ruin. It's just one sin. It's just one sin. We just want to get wealthy. We just want to get rich. One of the reasons that sin is so deceitful is the belief that we can keep that sin under control you ever felt that way? I can keep this sin under control. It, it's as if somehow we can think, I can manage this sin. I can control this sin in my life. I have, that, I have the control of that sin. It doesn't have control of me. Right. Uh, we think, I'll contain this one sin. I won't allow it to grow. But once we've allowed sin to lodge in our hearts, it is sin that takes control. We are no longer in control. It is in control. We've given sin a home to live and to grow and to prosper in our hearts. In a sense, we have let the snake into the garden. We've let that snake into the garden. Of course, Scripture tells us there's only one way to deal with sin, right? We kill it. We, we kill sin. We, many of us know this John Owen famous statement, be killing sin or it be, will be killing you. And perhaps that's what happened to these presumptuous planners. The writer of Hebrews writes today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And a few verses later, he says, exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Oh, sin is deceitful. It deceives, it lies, it tells you, it gives you promises, promise after promise. And it never gives that to you. And whatever it seems to give you, it takes back. And maybe they could have n- never imagined themselves going about their business as if God were not even present. In their younger lives, maybe they may have thought like this. You know, we couldn't, can't imagine living life without God present. They were always lifting up their souls to God over and over again, but not now. And ignoring God's convicting spirit would be necessary for them to continue their sinful plan. It would be necessary. They're going to have to ignore God. Uh, James is writing to churches that are, are largely Jewish. So these arrogant boasters would certainly have been familiar with Psalm 139. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence if I ascend to heaven? You are there. So at some point, they just just ignore God's presence. Have you ever gone several hours in some way without acknowledging God? Without acknowledging God? I know I have. And then it dawns on you that God is just right there all along. At some point, they began ignoring God's presence. That's what we do in your heart and your heart. You just ignore God's presence in your life. And they eventually stop lifting up their souls to God altogether. If the love of money was the motivation behind this uh, business plan, it is no wonder that they did not seek God's will for this plan. As Christians, they knew God would never help them carrying out their sinful desires have you ever kept your plan, your desires and plans from God because you knew there are things in your plan that God, God would not approve of? So you kind of kept that plan to yourself. Well, uh, even if the plan proved successful at this point, there was, there was no guarantee of its ultimate goal. Even if every other step went, went, went good, uh, it ends because this ends in verse 13 with and trade and make profit. Even the best laid plans don't always come out making a profit. You can have a carefully uh, step-by-step plan and eventually there's things you don't see and it blows up. And, And so even with all the great power and authority, Solomon knew what it took to bring about success just one of two psalms that, that, that Solomon writes. Psalm Psalm 127, one. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. These men built a plan, which is a biblical thing to do. It's good to plan. We'll talk more about that. But they never looked to God for success. Jeremiah knew that success... Uh, began with him. He says in Jeremiah ten twenty three. I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself, that it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. And again, lamentations. Who has spoken, and it came to pass, unless the Lord commanded it. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamity and good things come? For these arrogant boasters, their financial success was predicated on predicting the future. That's the arrogance of it. I know the future. I, I, I can't see any problem here. Well, you're not God, so you don't see all the problems, of course. A uh, few decades ago, I began looking at the best way to invest money. Oh, boy. <laughs> and I absolutely knew nothing about investing at all. Now, I eventually went, learned, learned enough and went conservative and have and been pleased that I did that. But before that, I learned something very important about investment fund managers. They don't know the future. <laughs> but they pretend that they do. They, they claim to have access to all sorts of elaborate, sophisticated investment tools that the average investor just doesn't have. Very attractive, right? Very attractive. Wow, these guys, these guys know what they're talking about. So as I continued my research, I ran across an article where a journalist took these top financial money magazines and to see if they, they were really as successful as they touted themselves out to be. It was amazing. And, and the subscriptions to these magazines hundreds and hundreds of dollars for subscriptions to these things. These, these, these were the top magazines. These were, oh, this, these guys know what they're talking about. Again, they claim to have all the financial tools to ensure their success. Not one of these were successful. Now, every single one lost money. I just had to laugh at that. Every single one lost money. Uh, you would have been, had a greater success than just simply flipping a coin in your investments than to have put this kind of money uh, into money magazines and such. Uh, they did not have an ability to predict the future. That's the bottom line. They could not predict the future. As many things and tools as they had uh, to, to, to know the flow of the markets and all these kinds of things, no, you can't. You can't. You just can't do it. Of course, the uh, the plan of these merchants, including one very important plan, it was the plan to stay alive. They were counting on that. They were counting that they were going to stay alive during this plan. These men assumed that they would live long enough to see their plans succeed. James reminds these arrogant planners in us that death. Has a way of changing even the very best of plans, right? In verse fourteen, James says, "Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes." Commentator J. Adams gives three truths that must be at the forefront of godly planning. Your life is short. Your life is predictable. and Your life is feeble. Those are good things to remember when you're going into to planning. Of course, the brevity of life is evident to every human being. We, we know it's short. But reminders of how the brevity of life, those reminders help us to set our priority. We need to be reminded of how short life is. What am I doing to build God's kingdom in this short life? Am I preparing one day to to enter that better country whose builder and maker is God? So we need to know how short our lives is. Or am I living as if this life will never end? As if this life is just never going to come to an end? With a a touch of slight humor, I'm going to read something by Kent Hughes. He tells this story. It is said that long ago, when an eastern emperor was crowned crowned at Constantinople, the royal mason would set before his majesty a certain number of marble slabs. One he was to choose then and there for his tombstone. (laughs) The ancients thought it wise for him to remember his funeral at the time of his elevation, uh, for his life would not last forever. And then he finishes with this little bit of humor. Uh, perhaps this would be a profitable ceremony, say, at graduation. <laughs> I can't imagine that happening. But Well, most commentators describe the brevity of life with this word evanescent. Evanescent. And it, evanescent is defined as soon passing out of sight, memory, or existence, quickly fading or disappearing and that is certainly what we see in scripture and that's certainly true of the following three verses that i want to quote psalm 39 4 through 6 O lord make me know my end and what is the measure of my days let me know how fleeting that my life is Uh, How fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths in my lifetime as if nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. Psalm 90, verse 10. This speaks to me. I'm right around, I'm in that age gap. Uh, the years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. Uh, they are gone and we soon fly away. Now, this last passage has a detail that's not mentioned in those first two passages, and I think it's really good. Psalm 103, 15 and 16. As for man, his days are like grass, he flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone. And it's, and its place remembers it no more. Its place remembers it no more. You know, we can think of significant uh, events in our lives. You know, there's times that we did memorable things. We influenced people in a, in, in a positive way, maybe a negative way sometimes. Uh, Looking back, we remember notable achievements in our lives, in our careers, in our families, in our outside interests. And people often remember us uh, based on on those things. But how long after leaving this world do people remember any kind of an impact that you might have left on this world? I mean, some make it in the history books, but not very many. Not many. How long before we become a faded memory uh, at best? We're like that footstep; those footsteps in the sand, right out the after the the ocean waves. A few waves roll over that, that footstep, and that it's not there. There's no evidence that we were there. Its place remembers it no more. That's it. Well, uh, death destroys all earthly hopes and dreams, and that's the point. If all of our, our life and efforts and joys and treasures are going to be in this life, well, when we die, that's that's gone. All those hopes are gone. Those who end up with the most toys don't win anything at all. In fact, God's going to take those toys away from them. Right? Up until now, James has been exposing the sin of these presumptuous planners, but now we go to verse 15, which is really the, uh, the key verse in our text. Uh, in it, he presents the godly attitude that these professing believers should have had. It says, instead, instead you ought to say, if the Lord's will, we will live and do this or do that. Again, as we read in Proverbs 3, 6, in all your ways, acknowledge him. In all your ways, acknowledge the Lord. Uh, It it is an acknowledgement, too. It's an acknowledgement that I can do nothing without you, as Jesus told his disciples. When we say if it's the Lord's will, we're really acknowledging that we don't have the power over the future. Uh, and yet it is without God. We can do nothing. And yet we, we hear Paul say something a little bit different. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. So we see that, the, the two sides of that coin. Uh, but saying if the Lord's will can become a ritual, it can become a superstat, supernatural, or superstitious incantation, something that we need to simply recite. The thought being that without performing the ritual of saying, if the Lord wills, uh, God would not bless our petition. Now, I have some fairly lengthy quotes, and probably that's the end, and in the rest of the message here, but. I want to comment on this a little bit, because I just love the comments that were, were given here. Douglas Moo comments, Jesus himself exhibited the same submission to the Lord's will at the great crisis of his own life in Gethsemane, expressed in his famous, yet not as I will, but as you will. However, as Calvin pertinently observes, Jesus, Paul and the other disciples do not always state this condition when they plan for the future. Uh, what was important is not the verbalization but that they had it as a principle fixed in their minds that they would do nothing without without God's permission. So it's not like every time we have to say, if the Lord's will. I was <laughs> it was funny, I, I used to Speaking of prison and stuff, and I, I remember I was, it was the end of the message, and it's was, it was time to, to break up. And, and I, you know, like, next week I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna be doing this. And one said, "If the Lord wills, <laughs> good for you, good for you." At <laughs> Kent Hughes' comments, the phrase has been immensely popular at different times in the Christian Church. The Puritans loved it and filled their speech and correspondence with the Latin equivalent. Deo valente, God willing. Uh, And then he goes on to write, "So so pervasive is our culture's arrogant independence of God that even many, if not most, Christians attend church, marry, choose their vocations, have children, buy and sell homes, expand their portfolios, and numbly ride the current of culture without any substantial reference to the will of God. That's practical atheism. That's really what that is. He goes on, More Christians never seriously pray about God's will regarding their vocation, family, direction, or entertainment than actually seek God's will. They change Augustine's love God and do as you please to do as you please and say that you love God. We all, he goes on, we often live without serious reference to God's will. This is practical atheism. Uh, and that's the end of those quotes. Thanks for bearing with me. I just, I just thought those were really important. Now in verse 16, James gets to the root of this godly plan. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is, is evil. These arrogant boasters are doing exactly what Jeremiah rebukes Israel for. They were boasting in their wisdom, their strength, and their wealth, and not in God. We know this passage, Jeremiah 9, 23, and 24. This says to the Lord Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his, land, his, his might, let not the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. So what is this arrogant boasting that they're doing other than rejoicing in their independence from God? That's amazing. If we're really going to consider some of these to be Christians, they're rejoicing in their independence from God, really? That's how much more wicked could you actually actually get them to do that? So whether these were merely professing believers or believers who had taken the path of the prodigal son, James really never says. But we're going to assume that there are probably some Christians there. Whichever the case, it would certainly take a very hardened Brazen heart to rejoice, to rejoice in rejecting God's authority. That's hard to even comprehend for a Christian. Of course, the self-determined, self-directed uh, person is what uh, the world uh, aspires to be and, and admires in other people. This is uh, the things that we're talking about here, about not trusting in ourselves. It's just completely the opposite of the way that the world talks to us today. And what they teach, we all know those expressions, right? Those those expressions of uh, of self-reliance. Go for it. Take charge. Believe in yourself. Show everyone you're in control. Be your own boss. You can do it. And of course, that all-familiar, just do it. (laughs) And then we remember that, uh, some of you, well, I do, I'm kind of old. I remember that old popular song, I did it my way and nobody in the world really bats an eye to, to those, that kind of thinking. These expressions of self-reliant boasting, and here's the problem, here's, here's the problem, they sound so natural and even admirable, right? To an unbelieving world, we have to make certain such boasting does not become admirable to us or natural to us. And that's a problem when we, we constantly see, it, see and hear that boasting uh, in our day-in day and day-out lives, in our work and school, we, we're hearing that all the time, all the time. We have to counter that kind of thinking, right? If it can, it can begin to sound so natural to us. That's why Paul says, do not be conformed with this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Because We have to renew our mind. We have to constantly be transformed by God's word because we're getting those other messages. We're getting those messages all the time. Of course, as a former Pharisee, Apostle Paul had a list of achievements that he could boast and brag about. Yet those achievements meant nothing to him. When, when, when Jesus knocked him off his high horse, when he, when he showed him his, his proud heart and his sins, Paul began boasting in Christ Jesus and he put no confidence in the flesh as we read in Philippians. Well, James spares no words or feelings when he's going after these uh, arrogant boasters. Again, he knows that this proud, autonomous spirit can have a leavening effect in, in the whole church. And that's the job of a pastor to stop those kinds of things. So... Uh, James finishes this rebuke with these words in verse 17 of our text. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. You know, I was looking over this text for the first time and considering doing a message on this. You get to verse 17 and you go, what does that have to do with the rest now? (laughs) Seems like almost like it's uh, out of place. Uh, But but they, they do logically click, you know with the next text. Uh, James starts with the word so. So, of course, that means that because of what has just been said. So we know that's what it's, it's dealing with. So what is the right thing these planners failed to do? Again, what is the, the key verse in our text? Uh, that holds the answer. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this. James is addressing the sin of omission. The sin of omission. This is what you should have done. This is what you ought to have done. Uh, as opposed to pointing out a sin of commission, something that they had committed, which they they, they had committed some sins as, as well. And so the right thing to do is to acknowledge God's authority in their business plans. That was the right thing. That was the thing that they ought to have done. Sins of omission? You know, they're just as sinful as... Uh, as or, Sins of commission, sins of omission—they're all—they're all sins, right? And which is the most difficult to obey, sins of omission or sins of commission? Think about that rich young ruler who who claimed to have kept all of God's commands. Of course, he didn't quite keep them all, though, though, did he? But you can see where a person says, "Yeah, I, I you know, I can keep God's commands. I don't do this. I don't do that, and other such things." But how careful are we? To use our resources to help others—that's a sin of omission. It's a sin of omission. Uh, how often have we passed up opportunities to do good? You know, it's times when oh, I, I, I had the golden opportunity to say something about Christ. You know, we kick ourselves and we, you know, we, you know, beat ourselves up for a little bit, but. We miss those opportunities, right? Those are sins. Those are sins of omission. We had that opportunity. We knew the right thing to do, and yet we didn't do it. And I certainly include myself uh, with that guilt. Well, while presumptuous planning refuses to seek God for guidance, wisdom, and blessing, providential planning acknowledges God in all our ways. Uh, so the verse we need to understand again, it's that same verse 15 uh, for providential pl- planning. Instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills we will live and do this or that. And, and that is the basis of the foundation of providential planning. That's where we start. That's where we start in all of our plans. If the Lord wills. Seeking the Lord's will certainly is that anecdote to presumptuous planning. But the Begs the question, what is the Lord's will? What is the Lord's will? We're going to talk about this a little while. I'm not going to go on a long excursion about it, but uh, we need to say some things about the Lord's will. Uh, so before that, we must uh, begin with the question of what, what does providential mean? What is, what is providential? In doing that, we must first understand uh, the difference between God's sovereignty and God's providence. Now, for a while ago, uh, often I confuse those two. I never really had a clear definition between God's sovereignty and God's providence. So I had to do a little more research myself. And so we need to understand that difference. God's sovereignty means he has the right and authority to rule and reign over his creation. He has the right to authority. He is the king. He is the creator he can do as he pleases and that's exactly what we see uh, in scripture. God's providence is God's sovereignty in action. God's providence is God's sovereignty in action. So we see God's God's uh, providence being carried out throughout all of history. He has a sovereign right to rule and reign in creation and, and God's providence is showing him doing just that. He's carrying out that, that right. In God's providence, uh, yeah, and we already read that passage from uh, Ephesians 1.11. I'm just going to do it again. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. The counsel of God's will is not limited to election and predestination. That's an important thing to, to understand when we read that passage. It's, not, it's all things that come to pass, not just that we end up in heaven, but how we end up in heaven, all the steps that God uses. And so God's eternal plan includes all things that come to pass. And I'll just read one verse. I mean, we could multiply verses on, on God's providence. Psalm 33, 10 and 11. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all, uh, to all generations. So again, this, uh, I, I use passages like that one day. And I was teaching a, a, a Bible class. and was a long time ago, 40 years old. And uh, we had a Mormon in our class teaching adult Sunday school. And her neighbor had challenged her. Uh, and so she was sitting in the class. We all knew she was a worm. A uh, nice young lady had a couple kids. And uh, she just wanted And I said, uh, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going uh, to start teaching on the attributes of God. I'm going to start teaching on the attributes of God. I had 40... I remember I had 40 passages you know, on the attributes of God. Because... The God of Mormonism is not the God of the Bible. <laughs> and I wanted her to be able to see that. I wanted her to be able to see it. And she did. She, said, she realized that is, that is not the same God. Uh, she came to a saving faith in Christ. Amazing. Uh, she was baptized. She was active in the church. Joined a women's Bible study. And uh, she said, you know, when the bishops came to the door, I said, I am not a Mormon. I'm a Christian. It took a while before that they stopped coming to her door. But that's a good starting point in witnessing, by the way. If you know the attributes of God, you know, when you're talking to somebody who, who thinks that they know God and they're Christians, but they really they have a completely different view of God. I had two Mormon friends. Friends. They were friends. I was out in my, my deck uh, patio, you know, first level, you know, I was getting something out of my shed. It's two young lads walk down the walk down the steps there. Hey sir, how you doing today? <laughs> oh, I'm just I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine. And uh, I, I just I just I just started out. We have different gods. We have different gods. Uh, my God is almighty and he is all powerful. You cannot thwart my God's will. Your God has failed. In fact, what your God failed to do, according to you, he failed to keep his revelation intact in the first century. He had finite, sinful men come and destroy your weak weak God's plan. I can't trust that God. That's not a God I can trust. My God is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. You will never thwart my God. They kept trying to walk away, and I just kept talking. I kept, I kept them there for a lot longer than they wanted to be. But uh, anyway, those are powerful. It's powerful when you, when you understand and know those attributes of God. And so the, in two different cases, that came in very, uh, very handy. But even more than that, we see God's providence being played out over and over in Scripture. Narrative portions of Scripture being played out from the the raising and lowering of kings and kingdoms to an insignificant sparrow falling to the ground and everything in between. All history is God's history. All history is God's history. So again, what is the Lord's will? Well, as we saw, it's everything that comes to pass. What is God's will? Everything that comes to pass. That's God's will. That's God's will. God's eternal plan and always will be carried out perfectly. Now, some have wondered, the objections come, right? Since God has planned everything that comes to pass, well, why should I pray? Why should I pray? Why submit my plans to God? How is my prayer going to change anything? And is my life going to have an impact in this world if God is sovereign and decreed everything that's come to pass? Well, these questions they often arise from an incomplete understanding of God and of God's plan. God accomplishes his plans through the means of prayer and through the means of evangelism. You know, in Romans ten, Paul's how how are they going to how are they going to be saved unless somebody's sent out to preach the word and they hear the word and they believe the word? All these things have to happen, but but God is providential over those things as well. He's not just He's not just providential over the end; He's providential over over the very means as well. And so God accomplishes His plans these ways. Our prayers and evangelism themselves are a part. Are a part of God's will. A long time ago, when I was, when I was first, started, in fact, that very class, I was just, I was just becoming reformed, and that wasn't a reformed church. <laughs> uh, you didn't know, always appreciate things that I said, uh, but eventually, I, in fact, I just, I really did uh, uh, stay because of that uh, that Mormon woman. But one of the one of the ladies in the church came to me, you know, with that, you know, why should we pray? But you know, why, why should I pray? You know, uh, no. Her, her assertion was, prayer moves the hands of God. Prayer moves the hands of God. In other words, my prayer makes God do things. My God, he, God's got to always be changing our... All these prayers, God's got to be ripping up his plan because we're praying, and that plan, okay, can't do that because this person prayed this and so on. And I don't know where it came from, but I said... Yes, uh, prayer moves the hands of God, but something happens first. God moves the hands of prayer. I I don't think she quite got that. I I don't know, or maybe I'm sure she didn't appreciate it if she did got it. God moves the hands of prayer. That's what happens first. Of course, God's eternal plan uh, doesn't mean we are excusable for our sins. God sent his son into the world to be crucified by wicked men yet those men perfectly carried out the plan of God they they carried out the desires of their heart those those wicked desires and at no time did God force or coerce these men to do that they never became God's puppets puppet yet they perfectly carried out God's plan of redemption if you figured out how that works you're wrong I don't think you can actually do that, but it's one of those mysteries, amazing things uh, that we, we willingly do God's plan, uh, no matter what what we are doing. So when we pray, uh, knowing this, God has revealed his his will his his revealed will and his hidden will. God has a revealed will and He has a hidden will. Moses writes in Deuteronomy 29, 29, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Forever. There's there's two wills there that's going on. There's a secret will and there is a revealed will. Uh, What is God's revealed will? All the words of this law. That's what he has revealed to us. All the words of the law. And it's a call to obey His will. It, it it conveys, or excuse me, it covers everything we are commanded to do, and what we are commanded not to do, and what He wants us to know. That's God's revealed will for us. Uh, of course, I can't think of a better passage on God's revealed will than Second Timothy uh, three fifteen through seventeen. I, I've got to read this. <laughs> and how, from childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture uh, is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every God, every good work. That's another good thing that you might ask the cultist. Uh, is, is there something lacking in this passage that, that you know, you know, you want to give me your book, and you want to give me this pamphlet, and you want to give me that. It seems to me like everything in here tells me this is all I really need. I don't need anything else. You know, and that's why we believe in solus Christus. That, that canon of scripture has been old, been been closed. We have everything that God has intended for us to to have. So in God's Word, we're taught the way of salvation. Uh, we're taught to think about God correctly. We're taught to know how to live uh, holy and godly lives. And we're taught that Scripture completely equips a believer for every good work. It's not lacking. There's, just, there's no lacking in what God has given to us in, in His revealed will. And in my opinion, anything else is an unwarded attempt to to pry into God's hidden will. It's saying, No, that's not enough. I want to know what I d I don't I want to know what Scripture doesn't say. I want to know these things. Okay. And to do that is tacitly accusing God of failing to provide all that's needed for the Christian life. The Bible's not enough. I I want more. I need I need to have more. So perhaps the most popular questions, question that, that Christians have, have asked. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't see it so much in reform circles, but I come from more Arminian background, so you're going to hear this. What's God's plan for my life? What's God's plan for my life? And uh, you know what? That It's a desire to know the future. That's what it is. That is a desire to know the future. In other words, it's a desire to know the hidden will of God. I want to know that hidden will of God. And God's not going to tell us. He's not going to tell us. Where should I work? What school should I attend? Who shall I marry? Uh, God's word is God's will. That's where we find the answers to all those things. Uh, So so getting back to our text here, James is not rebuking these merchants for engaging in commerce. Oh my, did I do it again? I sure did. Oh, the time flies. Okay, I'm probably going to have to cut some of this out a little bit, but Uh, So now I think I'll go to to more salient points. Uh, Sorry that I I had done this. I really have to come to a a kind of an end uh, to all of this, unfortunately. (laughs) So anyway, in conclusion, right? We know as believers that the journey to the celestial kingdom is ours. We're on that journey. We we may not know a lot of things, but we know one thing. We are on that that journey. And it is fraught with hardships and temptations. And uh, we know that. We know that. 72 years old. I I know those, those hardships and temptations. And we don't know what's around the next corner. We don't know what God's hidden hidden will is but we know how our story ends we know how that ends because our king has promised to bring us safely into that kingdom we know that that's not the hidden will of god that's the revealed will of god that's what we can take to the bank our journey is a journey to somewhere It's a journey to somewhere. At the end of the journey, uh, at the end of Paul's journey, he writes these comforting words. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all those who have loved is appearing. But if Christ is not your king, uh, your journey is not going to end well. It's just simply not going to end well. And it will not end by, by merely ceasing to exist. That's not the way it's going to end. Daniel 12 says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. We're not going to die into nothingness. We go somewhere. Our journey is actually... All all people are having a journey somewhere. Hell was not invented by Christians. It was not invented by Christians. In fact, one commentator says, out of the 22 occurrences of hell in the New Testament, if you count Revelation, 19 of those times comes from the lips of Jesus. 19 out of 22... You know, you could almost explain away the other three occurrences, right? But how are you going to explain away 19 occurrences by our, by our Lord in our Savior? The opportunity to trust Christ as your Lord and Savior, that opportunity is now. It is today. If you do not know Him, you are on a road to somewhere. And we, we pray that that road is in a good place. What's the best time to seek the Lord? isaiah says seek the lord while he may be found call on him while he is near let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man is thought let him turn to the lord and he will have mercy on him and to our god for he will freely abundantly pardon that's the promise that's the promise i know as christians when we we get down and out sometimes we just need to go to those promises of god well this is what you said and know i'm standing on that But God gives you this wonderful promise as well. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What a wonderful promise. You're not the exception. If you're coming to God really and truly with your heart saying, Yes, yes, I want you, Lord. You won't be the exception. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord is going to be saved. Uh, it is uh, the, our prayers that when your journey when your journey ends, that you are going to uh, be in eternity of endless joy and peace. We as believers know where this journey ends. It, it ends in, in that beatific vision as we as we hear about that that first time when we open up our eyes and we see God. We see God like we've never seen Him before. Who knows what that's like? But that's going to be a wonderful time. And joy and peace and everlasting joy is going to be forevermore. No more pain or suffering or sorrow, crying. All those former things are are passed away. So it is our prayer that if you do not know Christ, that that will be the end of your journey as well. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we we thank you, God. That Lord, your, your will has been given to us. It's been so uh, clearly and, and, and plainly uh, given to us in your word. We, we have everything that we need to know uh, for salvation and for, uh, for knowing you in all of your ways and how to live the Christian life. There's nothing that's incomplete uh, in your word, Lord. We thank you that you have provided these things for us. Lord, of course, most of all, you've given us your son. We have a debt that we could not pay, and your son paid that debt. Lord, we we, we lived a life that that was displeasing to you, but you sent your, your son to live a life uh, that is pleasing to you, and that we would have that put upon our account, Lord. We thank you for so great a salvation. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.